uh, probably know that uh, this last Friday was a pretty cool day in my life. I became a United States citizen on Friday. Here is a picture of Judge Mills, who gave us the oath, and then Mayor Houston as well. And then uh, here's a picture of our family there down at the Old State Capitol where the ceremony was held. It was a very uh, cool thing. Now, this has been a, quite a process, a 10-month process, in fact. And uh, I was kind of interested, as someone who was going to become a new citizen, what did the United States think would be important for me to know about? You know, somebody knew what is important for me to know. And I discovered during this process that they thought it was really important that I learned about freedom and what freedom means, the cost of our freedom, and, and, and specifically the responsibility I now have as a citizen with my freedom. In a similar way this morning, as we continue our series walking through the Gospel of John, we have called it Encountering Christ, as you can tell from those banners, because we are looking at different encounters Jesus had with people in the Gospel of John. We come to another group of new people. In fact, these are some new believers that Jesus meets, and I thought it would be interesting for us to look at what are the very first words Jesus wants this group of new people to know. As a new citizen, I was told to, a, a lot about freedom, and you're going to discover with me together this morning, if you're following on your notes, just like with the United States, to some new believers, to some new believers, and uh, you notice I have the word believers in quotes there. We'll come back to why that is later on in the service. But to some new believers, Jesus shares how to experience freedom. His message is the same. It's all about freedom. Now, what Jesus means by freedom and what we sometimes think freedom is are probably entirely different things. Most people today, in fact, would define freedom... See if you agree with me here. Most people would define freedom as being able to do whatever I want to do. That's freedom. This, uh, you can't read Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son, without realizing this is what the prodigal son thought freedom was, right? If I could just stuff my pocket full of monies and enjoy all the pleasures that this world has to offer, ah, that would be freedom. And yet he discovers that it actually places him in even a deeper bondage. Others have thought that freedom comes through more knowledge. This was the optimism of the Enlightenment, right? Where it was believed that as human beings, through intellectual achievements, through scientific knowledge, we could create our own utopia here on earth. We could create this perfect place. And so things like religion were unneeded. That just kept people in the darkness. Words like salvation left our vocabulary because we as humans could save ourselves. Now, maybe you've noticed that the optimism of the Enlightenment era is long gone. In its place, we live in an era with skepticism and pessimism and uncertainty. Now, for Jesus, freedom doesn't mean being able to do whatever I want to do. Nor is freedom something that I can achieve on my own. If you're following on your notes there, for Jesus, freedom is becoming all that we were meant to be. Freedom is becoming all that we were meant to be. And he is going to share with this group and with us this morning that only he can do that for us. In this passage, he's going to talk about being free. Do you long for that? Do you carry burdens and bondages in your life like I do? I long for freedom. And Jesus wants to give it to us, friends. And as we walk through this passage, we're going to see 
exactly how it comes. So take your Bibles and turn them with me to John chapter 8. We're going to be starting in verse 31 this morning. We say this every week, but if you don't have your own Bible, we always encourage you. There's some red Bibles in the seat in front of you there, and you can find John 8 somewhere around page 700 or 800. And listen, if you don't own your own Bible and you'd like to have one, we want you to have that as our gift. Bring it back every week, because if you're a part of this church, you know that's where we're going for our source of nourishment. We go to God's Word, and we want to be first-handers with it, so take that Bible and turn it there if you would, as you are. Is it okay if we just turn our attention one more time to the Lord in prayer? Freedom, Lord. That's what you want us to have, and yet, I don't think I'm the only one here this morning who doesn't always experience it. And yet, you have come to give it to us, Lord. So we pray as we open up this incredible passage. You will open up our eyes, as Chuck said, in our hearts to see the promise you've laid out before us and the opportunity we have to experience freedom. We look forward to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, now, obviously, to be free means we must be in bondage to something, right? And according to Jesus, in this encounter with new believers and for all who would follow them after, including us, if you're following on your notes, we need to be freed from three bondages. We need to be freed from three bondages. Now, our passage starts in verses 31 and 32, which I'm going to read right now, but we're actually going to come back to that later in the service because to me, that is the key of this whole freedom thing. But let me just read those and then we'll move on. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now look at verse 33. They answered him. This group of new believers answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say we shall be set free? Now read verse 34 out loud with me on your notes there. It says, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. What, according to Jesus, is the first bondage that we need to be freed from, friends? It's sin. S-I-N. They are in bondage to sin. Well, as we just read... They don't like this idea so much, do they? They want to deny that they're in bondage to anything. Don't you know uh, who we are here? Don't tell me about being in bondage. We're free. We're free. Of course, we know Jesus isn't speaking about physical slavery at this point, but even those who understood he was talking about spiritual slavery, which you couldn't miss it after verse 34, they still chose to deny their condition. They didn't want to acknowledge that anything could possibly hold them in bondage. They understood freedom as being able to do whatever I want to do. Does this still happen today in our culture? Denial of bondage to sin? I serve that right up there for you. Does this still happen today in our culture? Denial of the bondage of sin in our lives? Maybe more than ever before. I mean, have you ever had the experience when you've had to confront a friend? Or it happens to me when somebody confronts me and they say, Hey, we've noticed this thing in your life. This sin that is holding you in bondage. My immediate reaction 
and I've experienced this with others as well, is it's not that bad. It's not that serious. It's not that big of a deal. Sin. We don't like that word much today anymore. It's kind of harsh, isn't it? Like we make mistakes, errors. I don't make the right decision all the time, but don't talk to me about being in bondage to sin. And that's the attitude of these people in this passage right here. And the reason for this is because of the way sin starts in our lives. It's not this big, grand thing almost ever, is it? It starts as this small little moment, this little toehold that gains a hold of our lives, and pretty soon it begins to infect us, and we find ourselves in bondage. You know that one moment of gossip? That one lustful thought that becomes another, then becomes another, then becomes another? That one self-aggrandizing, I accomplished this moment of pride? Sin just starts really small. We don't even notice it, but pretty soon. What happens is what the Bible talks about is that it forms these habit patterns in our lives. You know what I'm talking about, right? We all have them. These habit patterns of sin, and we find that we cannot break free from them. And it all started with this small thing way back when. Now, if you think I'm only talking about things like alcohol and smoking and rock and roll and drugs and all that stuff, you know that's not what we're dealing with here, right? We're also talking about things like anger. Is anger addictive? Better believe it starts taking a hold of your life. How about lust? Is that addictive? You don't even want to know the numbers of American males who are addicted to pornography. What about pride? We don't talk a lot about pride. But really, pride is like the root of all sin. It's me being my own God. And it just creeps in slowly. Prejudice. Racism starts small, but it begins to infect our lives. And Jesus says we're in bondage. We are in bondage to the sin, but here's the good news. I want to set you free. I want to set you free from that bondage to the power of sin in your lives. But the first thing you need to do is at least acknowledge that you're even bound. These people did not want to do that. We're not bound to anything, but the question he would ask us today is, have I accepted the truth of my bondage to sin? If you're on your notes, have I accepted the truth of my bondage to sin? These people did not want to. Have you? Or are you still in denial? It's not that big of a deal. It's a big deal. Second thing we need to be freed from is what I'm just going to call the bondage of religion. Number two, the bondage of religion. Notice what Jesus says, starting in verse 37. I know you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are ready to kill me, because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you do what you have heard from your father. This really makes them mad. Verse 39. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do the things Abraham did. As it is, you are determined to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. They continue to scoff at Jesus' insistence that they are in bondage. And so, as this Jewish crowd does, here's what they do in these verses. Did you notice it? They pull out their trump card. Oh yeah? We're Abraham's descendants. We're physically related to Abraham. How do you like them apples? 
There was a common belief during this time that Abraham was so righteous during his time that you could just kind of like feed off of his righteousness and that would add to your good works and to your merit so that God would see you as he saw Abraham. It's like, go to the bank of Abraham. That's all we need to do right now, right? Just need to rely on Abraham's godliness. All this is to say is they saw Abraham, their relationship to him as their religious security. Ultimately, Jesus agrees, though, with the author Van Goethe, who once wrote, none are more hopelessly enslaved, none are more hopelessly enslaved than those who falsely believe they are free. These Jewish people thought they were free simply because they physically descended from Abraham, and yet Jesus challenges them, listen, if Abraham really were your father, you would do what he did. And in my opinion, this is a direct reference to Genesis chapter 18. Maybe some of you remember this story where God sends a heavenly visitor to go and visit Abraham. Uh, Many think it might be an angel. Others think it might actually have been the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ himself. And what does Abraham do with this visitor? He welcomes him and receives him into his home. And Jesus is making a parallel with his life right now. God has sent another heavenly visitor, me. And yet, instead of welcoming me and receiving me like your father Abraham did, you're plotting to kill me. That just proves that Abraham really is not your father or you'd be doing what he did. Now, you're sitting here going, what in the world is the connection for us today here? Because not many of you are probably Jewish. And we can't pull out the Abraham trump card right now, but you've heard the statistics. 90% of people living in the United States of America say they are Christian. I don't know where people get that other than from the fact that their mother and father were probably Christian or that they grew up going to a church or maybe they were baptized when they were younger or maybe in their background as far back as they looked to great-great-great-grandma. Christian was always a part of their ethnic identity. For many, being an American is equivalent to being a Christian. But you know that none of that actually makes you a Christian, right? That is religious garbage. And basing your hope on that is just another form of of bondage, maybe the most dangerous kind. Paul wrote in Galatians 5, 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. In other words, that was the big debate during the time. Did you have to be circumcised in order to be saved? And what does he say? Let's read it out loud together. He says, The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Freedom. It's not based on legalistic effort. It's not based on your religious affiliation. It is not based on your ethnic background. It comes solely through welcoming and receiving as Abraham did. Jesus Christ into your life. By faith. So we need to ask the question this morning, am I relying on anything other than Christ to save me? If you're following, am I relying on anything other than Christ to save me? So two bondages, we move to the third one. And here, I don't know what your picture of Jesus is, but you've seen those old paintings where he's like holding a sheep and he's so meek and he's so mild. Is that, is that your picture? Because here, my picture is he's putting the gloves on. This is serious 
business. We don't always get this side of Jesus when we read the Gospels, but he gets right in this group of people's face because the stakes are tremendously high. Look at verse 41. You are doing the things your own father does. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. And many people believe that their comment here is actually referring to Jesus' birth. You know, some illegitimate stuff was going on there with Mary. And so they're taking a shot at him. We're not illegitimate like you. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and am now here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? How many of you parents have used that line before? Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet I tell you the truth. You do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? He who belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. If you're following on your notes, the third bondage we need to be freed from is the bondage of the devil or Satan. Jesus draws a line in the sand right here, doesn't he? You are either with me, for me, and for the Father who sent me, or you're living in an entirely different kingdom. You're living under the influence of the kingdom of the Father of lies. Now, I know we're way more educated to use words like hell and Satan and the devil and all that stuff, right? Today, we don't talk about that. But Jesus talks about it. Because these are the stakes. There are two kingdoms at war with each other. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And he says, you're going to be influenced by one or the other, so what is it? What is it? Can you understand the truth I'm speaking? These people can't because they're being influenced by a whole different kingdom. By the father of lies. And the question we should be asking ourselves here this morning, again on your notes, is what does my life say about who is influencing me? Which kingdom is having a better and bigger influence on your life? Now, as you can imagine, the people were enraged with Jesus at saying this. Do people still get enraged today when we talk about these realities? You better believe it. So much so, though, that they're ready to stone him to death by the end of this chapter. How dare he? How dare he talk about these three bondages? And you can read about that. I hope you do later this week. But what I would like us to take from these harsh words is what Pastor Jeff did such a great job talking about last week once again. This is another example of Jesus speaking 100% truth. But there is always, 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 always the balance of this amazing offer of 100% grace. Do you notice what he said? Why don't you believe me? That is an invitation. Come and believe me. Be freed from these bondages that so easily enslave you. The bondage of sin, the bondage of this false security that you work up with religion. And most dangerously, the bondage of the kingdom of this world. Grace is waiting for you. This 
is a word of hope, friends. Not condemnation. It's hope. And it's the same hope that Jesus expressed back in verses 31 and 32. It is the hope of freedom. It is the hope of freedom. A couple years ago, Peggy and I had the privilege of visiting some of our very close friends who live in the Boston, Massachusetts area. How many of you have ever visited Boston before? Just raise your hand. It's our first time visiting Boston, and so we get to the downtown area of the city, and some of you have have gone there, you know this, there's this little plaque sitting right in the middle of the street, Uh, it's called the Freedom Trail plaque, and you'll start at this plaque, if you start at this plaque, this trail, you see those bricks leading out, will lead you for two and a half miles throughout the city of Boston to 16 historic sites. If you just stay on this trail... You will get to see the city of Boston and all the history that is involved there. In a similar way, I think John 8, 31 through 32 is the trail of freedom for us as Christians. It is the path to being free from these three bondages. In fact, if you're following on your notes, in these verses, Jesus offers us a clear path to finding freedom from bondage. Let's read it out loud together on our notes and see the path to freedom Jesus provides. Would you? It says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I I see four steps. Four steps in those verses on this path towards freedom that Jesus wants us to have. And I'm going to use the whiteboard uh, to help us here. I want you all to go, ooh, by this incredible artwork. You ready? Yeah, I know. Have you been wondering who's been doing the banners? (laughs) Not me. Not me. So here's the path. That's my attempt at some bricks. But here's the path towards freedom from verses 31 and 32 of John chapter 8. The first step on our path towards freedom is belief. Belief. I mentioned earlier that this encounter is with a group of what? New believers. But as you can tell from this story, the word believers was in quotes because their belief was pretty brief. Belief is the initial point of contact with Christ. I want you to think about that plaque in the streets of Boston. We come to Christ. We come to this moment, and there's the opportunity to believe. It's the initial contact we have with Christ. But not all belief leads down the path to freedom. Not all belief is saving faith. There is a difference between belief and faith in Jesus Christ. Some argue, how can you believe certain things about Jesus or how can you believe the stuff that he says without being saved? And I'd say, we have a prime example in our text this morning. We have a other example we looked at in John chapter 6 where a group of fans believed what Jesus said, but not enough to actually put their faith in him. They liked what they saw. They got to the plaque, but then they decided, you know what? I'm not going to follow this trail. Are there other examples of this in the Bible, friends? How many of you were here in our series in James? I mean, how sobering is that verse, James 2.19, that says even the demons believe. Even the demons believe things about Jesus, and yet they are not saved. And from a human example, Acts chapter 8 talks about this man named Simon Magnus, who believes 
once he sees these incredible miracles that Peter and the other apostles are doing. But by the end of this chapter, he is being rebuked for his unbelief. I mean, he had joined the church. He'd been baptized. And yet he had not really put his faith in Christ. He never got on the trail towards freedom. And finally, I always have to think about Judas. We don't spend a lot of time thinking about Judas. Judas gets a pretty, pretty bad rap, and I guess deservedly so. But don't you think that when Jesus sent out the two, two by two, that Judas was preaching the gospel? Don't you think that G Judas was experiencing some pretty amazing healings while he was out there, and yet we discover by the end of his life he never put his faith in Christ? You see, belief, if you're falling on your notes there, is just the first step. It's just the first step in becoming a, what? Disciple. That's what Jesus wants. Disciples, not believers. He's all about disciples because discipleship is where the freedom is really found. Belief, it's the starting point. But it is by no means the ending point. In fact, in the next part of verse 31, we see what Jesus really means by belief. He uses that word disciple. It's not mentally just believing some things about me. It's not just believing that I can do some pretty cool stuff in your life. It's becoming a disciple. And the second way to do that, we discover, is this amazing, wonderful, awesome word, abide. Abide. You can see how to spell it there in your notes. Abide. It's not a word uh, that we throw around much in our everyday language anymore, is it? Were you like talking to your husband this morning? Like, let's do some abiding today. That'd be awesome. <laughs> not so much, but uh, I'm going to guess probably too, some of your versions don't have the word abide. They might have the words hold to or remain. But you know, if you know me, if you've been around here, I am on a mission in this church that we never lose this wonderful, amazing, incredible biblical word abide. It is so rich for us because it impacts how we view this war on shallow Christianity. In fact, I spoke on the very first Sunday of this year on this word abide being the key. The key to maturing and growing as disciples in Jesus Christ. What does it mean to abide in Christ? What does it mean to abide in his word as Jesus says here? If you're following, abide just means constantly connected to the source of life. Being constantly connected to the source of life. Abide. Jesus uses a great illustration. He uses an illustration of a grapevine, and he says, I'm the vine, and you are the branches. And if you want to bear fruit, which is what his goal is for you, we talk about freedom. Freedom is becoming who we were meant to be, bearing fruit in our lives. But if you want to bear that fruit, you must abide in the vine. You must receive this life-giving nourishment, the sap of life, by being connected in an intimate relationship with me. And on that first Sunday, I talked pretty openly and honestly about how we do that. We abide by arranging our lives around various activities. We might call them spiritual disciplines. I call them spiritual graces. The same kind of things that Jesus took part in his life, right? Things like prayer and the Bible and service and community, doing life together with other people, fasting, solitude, silence. There's all kinds of different ways that we can abide and draw our strength from the Lord. 
That's how we become disciples. Now, as we just said, uh, abiding does no good unless we're bearing fruit. In fact, you can pretty much tell if I'm really abiding, if I'm actually bearing fruit in my life. You can pray seven times a day. You can fast. You can read the Bible. But if you are not actually living out in your daily life, if you're not actually living out in your daily life, the kind of things Jesus lived out, and you're probably not abiding, and that's really the third step on this path towards freedom. It's the word obedience. Obedience. Friends, we talk a lot around this church, maybe you're sick of it, that we're declaring war on shallow Christianity, beginning with right here. And I just got to tell you this morning, obedience is where the rubber hits the road. You want to know the difference between shallow and deep? It comes down to obedience. And in my mind, obedience, here's my definition of it on your notes there, is actually living out our beliefs. That's all it is. It's living out our beliefs. Here's what Jesus says to be true. I believe it's to be true, so I'm going to live in that way. The Bible repeatedly affirms that only those who obey are truly Christ's disciples. Jesus would say later in John 14, if you love me, you will obey what I command. The Apostle John, writing to a church later on in his life, in the letter of 1 John, says, The man who says, I know him, I believe, I believe, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in him, but if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Such passages make it clear that obedience is the mark of a true disciple, and it is where freedom actually comes. Now, this is totally opposite of what we're hearing in our world today, isn't it? Obedience. <laughs> Gag me. Put me in prison. You're telling me I have to do this and this? Like, we have this image of God as this cosmic killjoy, right? Not wanting us to have any fun. Why, do we, why can't I do that? Why can't I just have this one thing in my life? I'd like us to totally reverse our thinking on that. I guess it's called a paradigm shift, right? Is it possible that God actually knows what is best for us and he knows in order to become who we really want to become, that obedience is the key? It's kind of like that path in Boston. Peggy and I could have showed up in Boston and decided, I want to see all 16 of those historic sites. Let's go. No map, no trail. We're just going to go for it. But within the confines of that trail, you would probably agree we would have had a much better experience in Boston than we would have if we didn't. And in a similar way, God gives us these rules, these laws, whatever you want to call them, because he loves us and he knows that he can offer us the best life possible. He can offer us freedom to become who we were really meant to become. And when we obey when we believe and abide and obey, it leads us to this fourth amazing thing on this path towards freedom, which is truth. Truth. Then you will know the truth. When you believe, when you abide, when you obey, then you'll know the truth, and the truth 
will set you free. Now, how many of you have heard that uh, verse before used? It's actually used quite a bit, even in our uh, culture today. A lot of universities have that verse there as their motto, you know. Then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And what they mean by that is the more uh, knowledge you gain about science, about politics, about history, about you name it, whatever subject, you'll be set free to become whoever you want to become. Now, there's nothing wrong with pursuing that kind of truth. But that's not the kind of truth Jesus is talking about here. He is talking about the fundamental truth of our human lives, the truth about who I am. And who I am is someone who is in bondage to sin and to these false ideas of what religion is and what it takes to please God and to the kingdom of this world and the truth about who Jesus Christ really is. He has come to set me free. Do you know the truth? That leads to freedom. Just like abiding, this isn't a one-time event, right? Like, woo, I'm enlightened now. I've got the truth. I don't need to learn anything else. This is a lifelong process. But as you daily learn to abide, as you daily learn to obey, you will begin to discover more and more truth about yourself, about this world about God. He will open up your eyes and your hearts to see what you were really supposed to see and more importantly, to become. To become who you were really meant to become. That's freedom. That is freedom. Freedom to rise above your sins. Wouldn't that be great? It's there for you. Freedom to live a holy life. Freedom from fear. Why do we live in fear? We're free. Freedom from death. That's a pretty good one. Pretty good benefit, I would say. Freedom from shame and guilt. We so struggle with these things, but he doesn't want us to. He set you free from guilt and shame. He set you free from condemnation. He has set you free so that you can enjoy a thriving relationship with the God of the universe who loves you and wants you to become who you can become. Freedom is what he has in store for his children, Jesus says. No longer slaves, but sons and daughters of our heavenly Father. I love how Paul put it in Romans 8, verses 1 and 2. Let's read it out loud together on our notes. It says, So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving Spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. Amen? The path is clear. Belief leads to abiding. Abiding leads to obedience. Obedience leads to the truth, and the truth shall set us free. I ask you this morning as we close, am I experiencing freedom? You know. Or am I still in bondage? Am I experiencing freedom like Jesus is talking about here? Or am I still in bondage? I know you're putting away your notes. But only one of those two words can describe you. You are either free or you, in, you are in bondage. And so I'm just going to ask you the question. Have you been liberated? Have you been liberated? Have you been walking the freedom trail? Now, if you're anything like me, you get off that trail every once in a while, every hundred thousand times or so. 
I decide to make my own veer down here. And I struggle with those things of shame and guilt and all that stuff that puts me right back in bondage. And yet, whether it's the first time, whether you're coming to that plaque for the first time in the street and you want to believe today, or it's the 1,000th millionth time, our God is a God of second chances, and he said, just get back on. Maybe you've stopped abiding, drawing your very life from me. Just start there again. Maybe you know there's some things in your life that you're not obeying me in my word. Let's go back to that part of the trail and start there. And then you'll start discovering more and more of the truth about who you are and how I love you and how I want you to experience freedom. Let's close this morning by reading Paul's powerful words out loud together in Galatians 5.1. He wrote, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Let's pray. Lord, why do we let ourselves be burdened by a yoke of slavery? When you have made the path clear for us. I pray for all of my friends in this room right now. I pray for myself. Lord, if we've gotten off the trail, that you would show us where that might be and where we can get back on. Maybe we just need to come to the trail in the very beginning point. We just need to put our trust in you once and for all. We've said we believe certain things about you, but today we really want to put our faith in you. I pray that they might be able to do that. For others of us who have walked off the trail for the one umpteenth time in our lives, I thank you for the invitation that is always there waiting for us to come back. And so, Lord, we want to rededicate ourselves to abiding and obeying and discovering the truth because we want to be free. That's what you want for us, and we're grateful for it. In Jesus' name, amen.